Hi, I'm Rob Buckingham, and welcome to episode 30 of Digging Deeper. This is a weekly podcast that takes a deep dive into a theme or subject and explores what the Bible has to say about it. Have you seen the movie Come Sunday? It's on Netflix and tells the story of Bishop Carlton Pearson, a fundamentalist Pentecostal pastor who had a revelation from God that everyone is saved and that hell doesn't exist. I'll share my thoughts on this film and its subject matter later on this episode of Digging Deeper. But first, what does the Bible say about dealing with regret? Let's find out. Are there any scriptures that can help deal with regrets? I have lots and they plague my mind. I think it was last week or maybe the week before I touched a little bit on regret and uh, a question was asked out of that discussion. Is there anything in the Bible? Where could you point me? And so, yeah, there's actually there's actually a lot in the Bible. And I've got to say one of the things I just love about the Bible is that it is people the stories of people uh, interacting with God and each other. And the Bible is an incredibly honest book. Some Christian books that I've read over the years, they just tell you the, the good bits, right? They tell you all the high points of someone's life. And then somewhere down the track, you're doing a little bit of reading about the person and you find out a whole lot more about them. Which, which, to me, it's it's helped me to breathe a big sigh of relief because you read some Christian books and you go, wow, you can really see why God might be using that lady or this guy because obviously they've got it all together. They never make any mistakes. They never fail. They just go from success to success. And then you find out somewhere down the track about all the failures and all the bad choices and everything. You go, oh, that's such a relief. If God can use them, then he could use me as well. So I think that is one of the things I love about the Bible is it just tells us warts and all about the the people in the Bible, Abraham, Moses, Paul, all these people, uh, you know, um, Mary, Deborah, all with great successes, all with doubts, regrets, fears, all of those things. And I think that's a really, really good thing. So first of all, if you do have regrets, welcome to the human race, because we all do. And one of the interesting things in Scripture is that there's at least a couple of times, probably more, where God says that he has regrets. And so uh, in, I think it's one of the Samuels, one or two Samuel, he says that he regretted making Paul, Saul, king. And then in in Genesis 6-6, around the time of the flood, or just before the flood, he said, I regret making people. (laughs) So (laughs) God has regrets and the Bible is full of regretful people. Uh, David is a classic example of that. We know from reading about David's life, that he made lots of mistakes, plenty of failures, and uh, he talks about his regrets. In fact, uh, he wrote about 50% of the Psalms, King David, and one of the Psalms, which is Psalm 51, is a song of regret and a song of sorrow uh, for his adultery with Bathsheba. 
And so regret. Uh, Peter denied Jesus. He had regret. And uh, I'm sure Judas had regret as well. The difference there, though, that Peter dealt with his regret in a different way. Judas felt sorry for himself and and ended his life by suicide, which is a tragedy, you know, because what Judas did was nothing worse than what Peter did. Peter denied Jesus three times. And Peter goes off in a bit of a depression for a few days uh, until Jesus restores him. We read about that in, in John chapter 21. But, but Jesus restores Peter. And if Judas had stuck around, Jesus would have restored Judas as well. And so they dealt with regret differently. And if you make a note of 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10, very interesting verse of Scripture, it says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so the two guys I just talked about there are classic examples. So the worldly grief, the sorrow for self, the sense of being overwhelmed, no hope, let's end it all. And it produces death. And sadly, I have seen that in particularly a few guys over my life as a Christian and as a pastor. And it's, uh, it's always a tragedy when someone chooses to end their life. But godly grief, that's what, what Peter had. He wasn't just sorry for himself. He was, he was sorry that he let his best friend down. And that godly grief re- produced a repentance that then led to salvation without regret. And so Jesus restores Peter and then gives him the keys of the kingdom. And what we see in the book of Acts is Peter taking those keys and first of all, he opens up the gospel to the, Gentile, uh, to the Jews, which we see in Acts chapter 2. And then from Acts 10, 11 and 12, he starts with those same keys, opening up the gospel and the kingdom for the Gentiles as well. The Apostle Paul had plenty of regrets. He murdered people, he imprisoned them, and then he became a Christian. Can you imagine? Just think about it for a moment. He'd murdered the friends and family members of Christians and he'd stuck some of them in prison and then he has this amazing conversion and then he goes around and he starts visiting churches and this is after a few years, of course, he starts preaching and teaching the Word of God. There would have been people in those congregations that were friends or family members of people that Paul had murdered, friends and family members of people that Paul had stuck in prison, maybe had tortured. And so there was an, a massive amount of grace that was needed of the church toward Paul. And also Paul needed a deal with his regrets as well. And so he actually talks about those in Philippians 3 uh, from verse 13. He says, One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And so he had plenty of regrets, but he said, one thing I do, I'm going to forget about the things that are behind. Why? Because regret is wasted energy and it's a waste of time. We can't do anything to change the past, but we can do something to change the present and thus the future as well. So Paul forgot about that 
which was behind him and he had to do that. His past failings, his past successes, all of that he needed to put behind him and then move forward, pressing toward the goal to win the prize for what God had called him onward or heavenward in Christ Jesus. And then he says, all of us, if we're mature in Christ, then we will take such a view of things. The prophet Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah 43, verses 18 and 19. He says, the for- forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. And the thing is that if, we, if we're focused on the former things, if we're dwelling on the past, we'll often miss the new things that God is bringing up before us in, in the present. So he says, see, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland, which is a beautiful metaphorical picture, isn't it, of of what God can do. Regrets are a wilderness and a wasteland, and God wants to make a way through the wilderness, and he wants to bring streams in the desert or streams of water in the wasteland. By the end of uh, Paul's life, he declared these words. He said in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. There's a statement of a man who, who had no regrets by the end of his life. And uh, so he looked back at his life and he goes, okay, I've, I've lived life as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. What a wonderful statement. There he is in jail for the third time. He's in chains in the lower dungeon, and it would have been horrible. Uh, dirt floor, probably wet, crawling with rats in chains, and it would have been dark, and he was probably lonely and cold. In fact, he writes to Timothy and he says, please hurry up, get here before winter, bring my cloak and my parchments with you. I want my Bible and I want my coat. I need scripture and I need to be warm, and I want some friendship. Timothy, hurry up. And so we all have regrets, but we also all have access to the grace of God. Uh, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so if we have regrets because of failure or wrong choices, bad choices, things we should have done that we didn't, things that we did do that we shouldn't, all of those things. We just bring them to God. We confess our sins to him. The word confess there is an interesting one. It literally means to agree with. So we agree with God that what we've done is wrong. Um, And then on the basis of that, he's faithful and just. He'll forgive us our sins and then purify us or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means he just washes it away as if it's not there anymore, which is wonderful. So God can actually take our mistakes and failures and then make them something great. He weaves them together. Uh, According to Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So all of those things from the past, the things that are successes, failures, everything in between, we bring them to the Lord and then he weaves them together. Just finally on this, the Bible encourages us to make choices today that prevent regret tomorrow. So we've got regrets from the past, but let's live each day today living a life with no regret And that doesn't mean that we're always going to be perfect. It doesn't mean I'm not going to make another silly decision or whatever the case might be. But I am going to live a more cautious life as a result. 
of, say, Proverbs 10.5, for example, he who gathers in sun in summer is a prudent son. He who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. So there's talking about two boys. One's wise and one's lazy. And each of them have a choice. It's harvest time. So the wise ones, he's going to get out and start gathering. He's going to start getting out and harvesting. But, but the other guy, he's just going to sleep during the harvest. And so one of them's going to have no regret and the other one is going to be filled with regret. And so live a life today that uh, makes sure that you don't have regrets tomorrow. I hope that helps you. Um, great question. Uh, love that. Let's get into this question on the new movie Come Sunday. And I was asked this about two, three weeks ago, any views on the new movie Come Sunday on Netflix. So when I was asked the question, I didn't have any views on it because I hadn't viewed it. Uh, But I have now. In fact, I said to Christy, let's watch this movie. So we did about a week or two ago. We sat down one evening and we watched Come Sunday and actually really enjoyed it. Uh, it's, it's It's a great film, well worth watching. It's on Netflix. So if you've got access to Netflix, as most people do, I think, these days, then watch Come Sunday. For those of you who haven't seen it, the backstory is something like this. Come Sunday is the story of Bishop Carlton Pearson. He's a fundamentalist Pentecostal pastor who had a revelation from God that everyone is saved and that hell doesn't exist. He was excommunicated from the Church of God and declared a heretic. Many people in his 6,000-member church left the church because of his teaching. He eventually stepped down from the church and after a while pioneered a universalist church and was accepted by other universalists as one of their own. Universalism, just to define that for you, in Christian theology, universalism is also called universal reconciliation Uh, universal salvation or Christian universalism uh, or in context just simply universalism and it's this. It is the doctrine that all sinful and alienated human souls because of divine love and mercy will ultimately be reconciled to God. That is everyone ultimately will be saved and spend eternity in heaven with God. Now, uh, I want to say right up front that I know people, Christian people, who love Jesus, who believe in universalism. So what I'm going to share tonight, I want to give you some insight onto this and also share a little bit about what I personally believe. Uh, There are four views on this topic when it comes to belief in life after life and also whether or not there is a hell, whether that hell is forever or just temporary and so on and so forth. So there's four main views of this. Number one, there is what is often referred to as the traditional view, and that is ECT or eternal conscious torment. That view basically says, and this is the view that would be held by most Pentecostal and evangelicals uh, in, in church life today, ECT says, in summary, that you have to be saved by accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour in this lifetime before you die. And if you haven't done that, then when you die, you go to hell and you're in hell, in torment for eternity without that 
ever having the possibility of that changing. So that's view number one. View number two is conditional immortality. That is a belief that the human soul is not immortal and that at the end of life, uh, the person is annihilated. Um, Some conditional immortalists believe that there is a short period of punishment for sin, but then annihilation and uh, that person ceases to exist. Those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour receive, as the Bible says, the gift of eternal life and thus live forever in the presence of God. So that's conditional immortality or annihilationism. View number three is the Roman Catholic view of purgatory, and that is that for those who um, didn't accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour, or they committed certain sins that haven't been forgiven in this lifetime, uh, go to a place called purgatory where they're literally purged of sin and, and the fire purifies and then they're eventually led into heaven. So that really is a form of also the fourth view and that is universal salvation because the purgatory view is that once you've been purged, and cleansed and purified, then you go to be with the Lord. So ultimately, that is a type of universal salvation. Um, and the view that people hold all d- it depends on what they think the fire, the symbol of the fire, what that achieves in a person's life and how the fire is interpreted. So with eternal conscious torment, the fire of hell is punitive, it's punishment, and the person persons are punished because they didn't accept Jesus, so they have to be punished for their own sin, and that goes on forever and ever. Um, For conditional immortality, the fire destroys or annihilates. For those who believe in purgatory or universal salvation, the fire is purifying. And uh, I went into a bit more detail on this, by the way, on previous podcasts, so if you want to hear a bit more teaching on hell, Uh, There's episode number six of Digging Deeper, which is called Is Hell Forever? And then episode 10, which is a discussion between myself and Shane Willard, and that's called Hell Again. So there's more on hell there for you. And as I said before, there are people who love Jesus that believe these various theologies. And I think that's a really important thing to understand. So There are people who believe in eternal conscious torment. Others believe in universal salvation. Some believe in annihilationism or conditional um, uh, immortality. Others believe in purgatory. And they all love Jesus. And so we can hold our own view and we can discuss this and we should be able to discuss this in a mature way with other believers, find out what they believe and why and ask good questions and have a good discussion about it, but don't fall out over it. And what I find, and I'm very saddened by this, is that, that many Christians today are never taught about different views in their churches. They're taught one way and that's the right way. And if you don't believe that, then you must be a heretic. Now, I used to be like that when I when I first became a Christian for the first few years. I was very black and white and I was right and what I was being taught was right and everybody else were wrong. They were heretics. I was in the truth. And I remember one time uh, when I went to Bible college and I was having a chat with one of the other guys at college and we were talking about end times, last days, all of that kind of stuff. And he told me that he believed the rapture of the church was at the end of the tribulation. 
And I didn't say anything to him about it, but I thought in my mind as I walked away, well, he's not saved. And what an awful judgment (laughs) I made of this guy. You know, all because his view of the rapture and the location of the rapture in time was different to mine. I believed in pre-trib rapture and that was the way it was going to be. And, of course, I've changed my mind on a whole stack of those things now. And so one of the things I love about doing Tuesday nights is that we get to get into some of this stuff and uh, unpack what different Christians believe, not just now but what they've believed over the past 2,000 years. And so I really think that it's important that we understand that there's lots of different views on a whole ton of different subjects in in Christianity and we should be aware of the different views and we should be able to be convinced about what we believe and also understand where other people are coming from. I think that's a really, really important thing. All right, let's get back to the story of Bishop Carlton Pearson. Um, in answering to the, 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 the question here about my views, I want to ask the question, how true is the film to the actual events? Because one of the challenges that we have in, in a movie particularly is it's, what, two hours normally, maybe an hour and a half, and, and how true did they stay to the actual events? Were there things added? Were there things left out? Did it move faster than it really did in real life? Probably. So there's a few things. Um, so, But if the movie is accurate, um, then Bishop Pearson, I'll say positively for him, he was certainly true to what he believed God was saying to him. So he he believed that God had spoken to him, that everybody is saved, and that hell doesn't exist. And he was true to what God said to him. He started preaching it to his church, and, of course, he lost a lot. A lot of people left his church Um Eventually, he lost his ministry in the Church of God, pioneered another church and so on. So he lost a lot through that, lost a lot of friends and lost a lot of credibility. Um, The other thing I would say is if the movie is accurate, then Bishop Pearson seemed to move too quickly on what God said to him. And I think this is important for all of us because just because God's told us something doesn't mean that he wants us to go tell other people straight away. It doesn't mean that we are supposed to start broadcasting, oh, God's told me and blah, blah, blah. Wisdom and maturity will hold those things. A little bit like Mary, you know, when the angel came to her and told her that she was going to fall pregnant by the Holy Spirit and give birth to a son and they're supposed to call his name Jesus. And it's like, this is a lot for a teenage girl. But she was wise. She was mature for her age. and, And she just pondered these things in her heart. And the only one that Scripture says that she talked about, I mean, she obviously talked about this with Joseph, um, but the only other one was Elizabeth. She she didn't go and blab it everywhere, and, and I think that that's a really important thing. So Bishop Pearson, to me, he doesn't, in the movie anyway, doesn't follow what John Maxwell refers to as the law of process. And this is something that I find is really important in leadership and something that Christy and I have done now for a long, long time. And you can use this principle uh, not just in a church, you can use this principle in a workplace, in a business, um, in, in, in a broader family context amongst your friends and et cetera. And that is that when you want to share something, you need to often take people on a journey. 
what Bishop Pearson does in the Come Sunday movie is like he has this revelation from God and it's like the following Sunday, Come Sunday, he's up in his pulpit and he's telling all of his people that everybody's saved and there's no hell. And what he does is he gives the congregation whiplash because they've been moving in this kind of fundamentalist, Pentecostal, preach the gospel, everyone's got to get saved or they're going to go to hell, and then suddenly he's like, nah, all that's wrong. It's actually 180 degrees different, and he gives the whole people uh, whiplash. So wisdom dictates what you share and when and with whom. And so what I would share, say, on Tuesday Night Live would, would invariably be a lot broader and a lot more detailed than what I would share on a Sunday morning at church. Um, I have twice as long. I have 30 minutes on a Sunday morning uh, and I have an hour on a Tuesday night. And also on a, on a Sunday morning, we've got people who are brand new Christians right through to people that have been Christians for a long period of time. And so I'm always going to uh, skew my message to particularly be appropriate to those who are young in the faith because I want to help them grow into maturity. I kind of presume that people that have been Christians for a long time, you've you've actually learned how to feed yourself as well. But Tuesday night is a time that we can really broaden this out and the Digging Deeper podcast, of course, that comes from that. So we followed the law of process at Bayside for a long period of time and actually just following the law of process on something at the moment, over the last uh, year or two, we've been developing a thing called the Inclusion Statement at Bayside Church. And uh, you'll uh, receive, if you haven't already heard about this, uh, you're going to be receiving an email from me, hopefully uh, by the end of this week, probably on Thursday, which will include... um, Uh, uh, an attachment plus a link to a video that explains our statement of inclusion as a church. But we've been working on this for a while. We've been working on it with the board and then from the board we took it to the ministry leaders or the pastoral team Uh, and then once that was good we took it to the staff and then we did a Zoom night to all of the church leaders And then a couple of Monday nights ago, we spent an evening on Zoom with some of the people that are directly affected by the statement of inclusion. And now this week, we're going to be taking that to the entire congregation. But from there, there'll be the offer to have another night on Zoom for anyone who has questions or want to discuss what this means. And so I think that's a really important process, the the law of process. So getting back to Carlton Pearson, I agree with him that salvation is for all people. And uh, let's have a look at, at some scripture here in 1 Timothy 2.4. It tells us that God wants all people to be saved and come to a full knowledge of the truth. How many people does God want saved? Well, he wants all people to be saved, and he wants them to come to a knowledge of the truth. The question I would ask from here, though, is are all people automatically saved or do they need to exercise faith, Uh, repentance and faith, actually? Uh, Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1 talks about turning away or repenting from dead works and having faith toward God. So there's a negative 
getting getting rid of stuff that's dead and turning to God, having faith in him and his salvation through Jesus Christ. Uh, that's Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Uh, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that really has uh, both of these truths in, in a nutshell there, Romans 10, 13, that whoever, so salvation is for whoever, everyone, but there's something that the whoever need to do. They need to call on the name of the Lord um, and and it's in that way that you're saved. I've dug a little deeper about Bishop Carlton Pearson and it appears to me now that he's actually become quite new age in his beliefs and teachings. Uh, his website states that he leads a movement to inspire self-actualization of soul and self and expanded consciousness. Uh, on his website, he describes himself as a progressive spiritual teacher, thought leader, sacred activist, humanist, and peace agent. Now, there's some language there that rings alarm bells with me. I come from a background of New Age involvement before I uh, was introduced to Jesus at the age of 19. And then for the next couple of years, until I was 21, I actually walked away from my faith in Jesus. And during those two years, I went very much into the New Age movement in Western Australia, the Down to Earth movement, uh, the Down to Earth festivals, different sorts of um, Eastern mysticism, uh, spiritual experiences through drug use, and so on and so forth. So um, I then came back to Christ from that background of um, occultism and New Age spirituality. And so when I became converted back to Jesus, uh, I realised that I had been involved in some pretty dark stuff. And so um, reading some of those words about self-actualization, expanded consciousness, uh, progressive spiritual teacher, sacred activist, all of that kind of stuff, i got to say it really rings some alarm bells with me personally. Um, so I want to wrap this up by talking about four things that I believe out of this, all right? So number one, number one thing, I believe salvation is open to all people. Uh, I believe that Salvation is actually much broader than we've ever imagined and that God is interested in saving people, much more interested than we are. And I think he's probably I think he's probably looking to the hearts of people. So one example that springs to mind of this is the times that we've spent in Indonesia, which is quite a few times, and uh, met a lot of the locals, and the locals are predominantly Hindu. So Indonesia, of course, is predominantly Muslim, although there are a lot of Christians in Indonesia. Um, but in Bali, there's a lot of a lot of people are Hindus. And we got to know some of them and they're absolutely delightful people and they really they love God and they love prayer. And out of discussion with some of these guys, they actually have come to the point where they say, My God is now Jesus. And so I know a couple of guys who go to Hindu temple. But when they go to Hindu temple, because that's something they do as a family, it's not just their spirituality, it's their whole culture and family is all wrapped up uh, in temple. But this one guy said to me one day, he said, whenever I go to temple, he said, I always pray to my God, Jesus, because my God, Jesus, is the only God I have ever found who answers prayer. 
And whenever we see each other, he always wants me to lay hands on him and pray for him. And that's stunning. I was having a chat with another pastor, an Aussie pastor who works in Bali, and I told him that story and I said, how common is that? And he said, it's incredibly common. In his opinion, there were hundreds of thousands of people who um, have found Jesus Christ and who still go to a Hindu temple, but they go there and they worship Jesus. So, I mean, go figure. That kind of blows my mind a little bit, and it's very much outside my nice, comfortable Western Christian box, but I find that God regularly wants to burst his way out of my my bubble, and uh, and he's a whole lot bigger than we've ever given him credit for. So salvation, number one, I believe salvation is open to all people and is much broader than we have imagined. Number two, salvation is found in Jesus Christ. And this is really important. Um, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So that to me seems very, very clear that salvation is found in no other name other than the name of Jesus. Number three, I believe scripture implies that the offer of salvation may extend beyond the grave. And we touched on this quite a few weeks ago, um, Digging Deeper podcast number nine, where I talked about post-mortem salvation or second chances after death. And again, it depends on how you read scripture. Revelation is a fascinating book. Remember that revelation is metaphor. It is highly symbolic. So uh, in chapter 21 of Revelation, for example, where do we find the wicked? Well, we find the wicked cast into the lake of fire. So, and, and a lot of Christians leave them there, right? Because apparently they're supposed to be there forever and ever. That's chapter one of Revelation. Get into chapter 22 and the wicked are now outside the city gates. So the New Jerusalem and there's walls and there are gates, but the Bible says the gates never close and uh, the kings of the earth bring their glory or splendor in and out of the city. The glory there, by the way, is the best of culture that exists in every country and every nation and every people group. So all of the colour and the festivals and the food and all of that kind of thing uh, is is brought in and out. And, and those who love Jesus are allowed to go in and out of the city, but then it tells us the wicked are outside the city gates. So in chapter 21, they're in the lake of fire. Chapter 22, they're outside the city gates. And then in the next verse... This amazing invitation, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. I mean, who are those words for? They're not for people who have already given their lives to Jesus. Who are already, They're already going in and out of the city, the Bible says. And so the spirit And the bride, the bride here is talking about the church. So the message of the church is to the wicked outside the city gates, come. Notice here, it's still a decision. They still have to make a choice. You can either stay outside or you can come in. It's up to you. Come, come. If you're thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes, anyone, this this is a free gift. Water of life, come. 
Isn't that amazing? I just love that. And so that's the third thing. And then number four, I believe it's vitally important for Christians to remain true to the tenets of our faith as articulated in the creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, uh, particularly, the creeds of the church express the essential truth of the church, uh, that our faith and belief in who God is and what he has done by sending his son, Jesus Christ, who's lived, who's died, who's risen again, who's coming back, and what the Holy Spirit is or who he is and what he's doing and our response to that. All of those things are summarised in the creeds and I think it's vitally important that as Christians, as followers of of Jesus Christ, that we remain true to the tenets of those creeds. They are our anchor. And I've talked to you about, you know, deconstructing faith and reconstructing faith. But as we do that, let's hold on to those essential truths that we find. Read the Nicene Creed on a regular basis. Read the the Apostles' Creed regularly. They're very, very similar anyway. But use those as your anchor because otherwise it's like you're set adrift. And it seems to me that that's what Carlton Pearson has done. In, In his moving into saying, well, everyone's saved and hell doesn't exist. That's one thing, but it seems that that's led to another, to another, to another, where he's completely adrift and has strayed from the creeds and looks like he has strayed from the Christian faith. So they're my views on the new new movie Come Sunday. I hope I've whetted your appetite uh, on that film and that uh, you might like to go and check that out. And uh, and that'll be really, really good. Let me know what you think when you've when you've read it. If Jesus said to the thief on the cross, "Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise," this obviously means that baptism is not required to go to heaven. Can you go to heaven by simply leading a good life, or would you say that acknowledging Jesus is good, as the thief did, is a requirement? Pardon me. Very interesting question, Mark. Really appreciate. That And so let's have a look at this story of the thieves on the cross and see what happened here. It's recorded in three of the four Gospels. So John doesn't mention it from memory. Matthew and Mark do, and Luke does, but they mention it in different ways. So Matthew and Mark record this as the passers-by, the chief priests and the scribes are all deriding and mocking Jesus and the two thieves, one on each side of Jesus, also on crosses, they've been crucified as well, they join in the ridicule as well. So that's according to Mark and to Matthew. So in Mark chapter 15 and verse 32, those who were crucified with him also taunted him. In Matthew 27, 44, the bandits who crucified or were crucified with him also taunted him in the same way. Luke has a different take on the story. And it's interesting, and it's not a problem. You know, remember, these are eyewitness counts. So if you and I saw the same thing and then had to give an eyewitness account, we would include different details. And we would see it all from our perspective in slightly different ways. And so the facts might be a little bit different. And also what we've got to remember is the Gospels were written for different purposes 
So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were four people who wrote their account of Jesus' life and ministry, his death and resurrection. Um, Mark's account, by the way, is probably Peter's gospel. It's unlikely Peter could write because he was a fisherman, so he may never have gone to school and learned to read and write. Mark, on the other hand, was from a very wealthy family and would have gone to school and um, and been well-versed in reading, writing, and probably quite a lot of other things. And so the Gospel of Mark is likely the Gospel of Peter The Mark wrote down for him. The, and Mark was also the first Gospel written. The four Gospels were all written for different purposes to different audiences. And also Jewish history was not written to convey facts. Uh, Jewish history was written to convey a message. They weren't as interested in getting all their facts right. From a Western point of view, we want to make sure this is right and that's wrong and we've got to have black and white and everything's got to agree with itself and there's got to be no contradictions and all of that. And actually life isn't like that. Life is full of grey and full of contradictions and different opinions and different different perspectives. We've seen that in, this, in our society and we see it in the world around us. It's a rare day when everybody agrees on something, right? And so the four Gospels are like that as well. And, of course, remember that both accounts could be accurate. The second thief could have had a change of heart while he was suffering on the cross. He could have been watching Jesus. In fact, he likely was watching Jesus' response and listening to Jesus' words. And so in the beginning, he could have been slinging off and swearing at Jesus and deriding him. And then later on, he's thinking, my goodness, this guy, this guy is no ordinary human being. And especially when he comes out and says the words, Father, forgive them. So, my goodness, what sort of man would do this? And so it's likely that the thief changed his mind on the cross. And so in Luke 23, verses 33 to 43, when they came to the place that is called the skull or Golgotha, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And the next few verses, it talks about the religious leaders scoffing at Jesus, the soldiers are mocking Jesus, and then one of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked his criminal friend, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And uh, some Christians who believe in soul sleep that is, that when you die, you go to sleep until the resurrection and they move the comma in that statement and they say, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise future. But here the regular interpretation of that is Jesus is saying to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. In other words, as soon as you die, as soon as I die, we're going to be in heaven together. So what we see in these words of the thief is, first of all, a changed mind and a changed attitude. So um, he's saying here, you know what? <laughs> We're being condemned justly 
We, we've stolen stuff. We are criminals. We're getting what we res- deserve for our deeds. And so what he's doing here on the cross is acknowledging and taking ownership of his failures. And he's also acknowledging something of who he perceives Jesus to be. This man has done nothing wrong. In other words, he's innocent. And uh, so he's, and he's acknowledging that. What we see there is actually a classic example of repentance. He's turning from his, uh, he's acknowledging his own failures, his own sins and, and crimes, and, and he's turning to Jesus. And so right there on the cross, he's crucified, he's been flogged, he's in pain, and he's dying, and he's turning to Jesus on the cross. And then he says this simple prayer. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, I will. Today you're going to be with me there, which is a wonderful promise. So, of course, there's no, there's no time for baptism here. And if baptism were needed for salvation, this guy would have been stuffed. Seriously. Um, <laughs> I'm on a cross. I'm not going to be able to get down from here. Uh, and so baptism and, and a long prayer and an altar call wasn't necessary either. You know, it wasn't, oh, bow your head, close your eyes, repeat this after me. The guy, Jesus, God looks at our hearts. You know, when I, when I came back to faith in Jesus, when I was 21 years old, I just thought on the inside of me, I've had enough of the way I'm living. I, I, I'll, I'm going to start living for Jesus again. I said nothing out loud. I wasn't in a church. I was actually at a farm visiting a friend and I was driving home thinking I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to follow Jesus. And I remember being overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit. It was like, oh, this is so good. Uh, the presence of God, I had never, ever felt it that like that before. It was absolutely wonderful. So no church service no prayer. I went back to church after that and, and prayed and, you know, got baptised and all of that kind of thing, uh, which I think is wonderful. Um, but all of those things can be good but are not necessary. All that was necessary was for this guy to turn to Jesus and that's what he did. So it's actually not about living a good life. Uh, the thief had not lived a good life. It's all about repentance from dead works and faith toward God, as it says in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1. There's a negative, turning away from dead works, and a positive, turning toward God. And, uh, and that's really important. So I hope that answers your question. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Digging Deeper and for being a part of the ever-growing Digging Deeper tribe. This is the final episode for 2021. Fresh episodes of Digging Deeper will begin in February 2022. In the meantime, why not listen to any episodes you've missed or re-listen to the episodes you've enjoyed the most. If you love this podcast, please let other people know about it and you can rate and review us on iTunes. That goes a long way to help others find us. I want to take this opportunity to wish you a happy and holy Christmas and all God's very best for the new year.